I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Ellie Albrecht, a partner at SMB Law Group. Ellie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's such an honor to be with you, David. And I am a big fan of the podcast and honored to be here. Thanks. So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast, a little bit about you, your background, how you came to practice M&A, your decision to switch to a smaller startup firm from a big law firm, the advantages of a somewhat less specialized practice, and also your engagement with social media, why you decided to do that, and what you gain from it. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you found your way to the law. Thank you, David. Excited for this conversation. I think it's an important one. My path was definitely not traditional. I grew up in inner city Milwaukee. It was a rough neighborhood, a majority minority community. I attended Orthodox Jewish day school and then public school. After 9-11, I was impacted pretty strongly by 9-11 and inspired to join the military. Then in high school, I started learning about my grandmother's story. She came from a large German family. She was the sole survivor after the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. And she escaped to Israel. And as I started learning more about her story, I started realizing that for me, as a Jewish American, it was important for me to volunteer in the Israeli military. And so as a 16 and a half year old, I went over to Israel. I eventually served in the IDF there in a special forces counterterror unit and then came back to the States, came back to the US where I grew up and I started a security company. I raised some capital and then we were doing high risk security. So security that required a level of sophistication above the normal security that you would see. After about a year, it turned out I was not a great manager and the investors compelled us to do an asset sale after about a year. So we closed up shop and I decided I wanted to go back to school. I realized that I had a real dearth in my education, a real gap. And so I wandered into the local community college, Baltimore County Community College. And I said, Hey, how do I sign up for school? And they asked no questions, but they did sit me down for a test. And I remember sitting there and taking the test and I knew nothing. And I had not even gotten to the... I was still in the remedial tests and was failing them. So I ended up going to community college, spent two and a half years getting a two-year degree. I loved it. I loved school, loved knowledge, loved being educated, transferred to Johns Hopkins, did my business degree there, pre-law track, then into Georgetown Law for my law degree focused on M&A. My first child was born in undergrad at Johns Hopkins. And then my daughter was born during my second year of finals in law school. And by the time I finished law school, I was laser focused on M&A, mostly private equity M&A, but also public M&A and very focused on getting into a big law firm. And so I summered at DLA Piper, which is one of the world's largest law firms, and then joined DLA as a first year associate, quickly lateral to Gibson Dunn. They had a fantastic private equity M&A team, really one of the top notch groups in the country. And so uh, I, I lateraled over there and that's where I did my career until I left earlier this year. Talk about your career in private equity. 
what drew you to the practice, what you enjoyed about the practice, and if there were a formative transaction or two that that really convinced you that this was what you should be doing. Yeah, I loved the idea of supporting M&A transactions. I love the idea that people could go get leverage, buy a cash flowing company, and then build that company into something bigger and better through cash infusions, through synergies, through economies of scale. I felt like, you know, behind the cloak, there was all of this action in private equity going on. And right when you walk into a store and you buy something off the shelf, it is all almost certainly owned by private equity. And most people interact with private equity owned companies, portfolio companies all day long and don't even realize that that's what they're interacting with. And so to me, I realized very early on that there was a lot of action happening in, in private equity M&A specifically. I did some public M&A as well, but I love the aggressiveness of the timelines. I love the negotiations. I love the sophistication and it was challenging. It took a long time to learn, took a long time to become proficient. But that's one of the things I loved about it was the complications. There was also a lot of strategy involved in private equity M&A. I often describe private equity M&A as raw M&A, just M&A, very few frills, very few regulations. It's just raw, real M&A. So that's what I loved about it. I did a lot of formative transactions. Some of the transactions were covered in the Wall Street Journal. And... I think one of my main formative transactions was the acquisition of McGraw-Hill, which was a big textbook company by Platinum Equity, which is Tom Gore's group out of California. And I did a lot of transactions for Platinum Equity, but McGraw-Hill was a fantastic transaction, just over $4 billion, a very aggressive auction process that Apollo ran. Apollo was the seller and Platinum Equity were the buyer. And we managed to maneuver ourselves very, very cannily to win that deal. We moved very quickly. There were six sleepless nights, but we... Talk about your thinking about your career and and how you, you looked at making partner at Gibson Dunn or being partnered at another Amlaw 100 firm and the advantages of, and disadvantages of that and how you weighed those. I always thought I would be a big law partner and I always thought I would be a big law partner at Gibson Dunn. And as I was moving up in my seniority, I started to look around and I started to see the path to partnership was incredibly difficult. And I would look at senior associates, 10th, 11th year associates who were absolutely incredible studs of associates who were sophisticated, who had great client management, who brought in business, and still were not making partner. And then I looked around at the firms that were creating this new non-equity partner track, which Cravath uh, just just also created. And, and, and people were getting pushed into non-equity partner tracks. And I realized two things. One, the path to partnership at big law firms had become exceedingly difficult and long. And the sacrifices needed to make partner were almost insurmountable if somebody was dedicated to their family and their faith and anything outside of law. And then 
The second thing I realized is that partnership was not necessarily what I thought it was when I went to law school. And I thought when I went to law school, partnership at big law, you know, you would work really hard for eight, nine years. And once you made partner, your efforts would be dedicated more to business development. You'd play a lot of golf and generate business. But I realized that modern big law partners had billing requirements. And one, I remember walking into the office of a big law partner, a really close mentor and friend of mine. And he was having a tough day. And I said, Hey, what's going on? And he said, Well, he was going through a difficult divorce. And we talked about it. And the kids wanted to go with mom. And it was heartbreaking to him. And he told me that his kids looked at him and said, Why should we go with you? You haven't been around for 10 years. You've been dedicated to your career and to making partner. And he said to me something I'll never forget. And he said, Big law partnership is a mirage. You think you're going to get there. You think you're going to arrive. You think you're going to be happy once you arrive. It's not there. And so then I had to go into it with my eyes open. I had to realize that for my priorities, I had to start shifting and looking elsewhere for the next step in my career. And so how did you think about that next step? Did you look at smaller law firms, in-house positions? Obviously, you landed at SMB. Talk about how you evaluated those various options. Yeah. So from Big Law M&A, you have a lot of options. And that's one of the reasons I loved corporate law work and and M&A work at a big law firm is that I had a wide range of options that were available to me. So I looked at in-house. I interviewed at some in-house funds and some in-house companies. I interviewed at lower tier AMLAW 100 law firms and, and received some partnership offers from them. And then lastly, some regional firms and even considered leaving law entirely. But for me, my consideration was twofold. I very much love m and Absolutely addicted to the deals. I'm addicted to the adrenaline of m and I can't imagine a life where I'm not doing m and deals. So going in-house seemed to me to be kind of hanging up my cleats and I wasn't ready for that. But the second point was the economics. And I want to be open and honest about this. The economics in big law, the salary is very good. And after a few years of making above 300 plus bonuses of 100 plus, it's very difficult to take an in-house job that's to 250. So for me, I want to maintain a very good quality of life for my family and for myself. I didn't grow up with money and I very much enjoyed the creature comforts that money affords me. And so I wanted a, a job where I could keep doing M&A and make a significant amount of money and be involved in growing something. And so I ultimately landed on SMB Law Group, which was a M&A boutique firm that had been started about six months before I arrived by also some former big law M&A lawyers. And what really drove me here is the desire to build something new and better. I feel like M&A at a big law firm is you're fitting the M&A clients into a big law litigation style paradigm. You're billing by the hour. You have to create a fee structure that doesn't necessarily work with M&A. And so I'm driven to really create 
a firm and a legal paradigm, a way of working with clients that is singularly focused on M&A and works better for the M&A clients. So we bill fixed fees. We don't bill by the hour. We create real partnership with clients. We're advising on a range of issues that are within law and even outside of law, but creating a real partnership with the clients. And that's what I was really driven to do with the next step in my career. For several years, you've had a significant presence on social media, especially LinkedIn. And then you had that when you were at Gibson. Talk about your decision to engage in that way and just how you view social media, how you view your relationship to it. Yeah. So social media is an interesting thing because when I started two and a half, three years ago, it was almost unheard of for a big law associate or a big law lawyer to be vocal on social media. And to be vocal in a personal way was absolutely... It varied from unacceptable to just not done. And so at the time, I decided to be vocal on social media because I interacted with partners and other members of my team. And the interactions were really focused only on work, on the deals. Things were so busy and so tense that there was no room for human interactions within our groups, within our teams. And and I felt that that was very lonely. It was very isolating. And that other people were facing the same challenges as me. And when I raised this to my wife, she said, well, why don't you just talk to your partner about your family life? And I laughed because there was no opening to do that. There was no... On the phone with the partner at 2 a.m. in the morning, I wasn't going to raise you know, issues that I was facing with not being there for my kid's wrestling tournament. So she suggested that I start posting about it on LinkedIn, which I did with the goal of expressing the challenges that I felt like I faced as somebody who wanted to be a successful big law lawyer, M&A lawyer while being a dedicated father and husband and person of faith. And that maybe there were other people who were feeling the way I was and am, and they were also not voicing it publicly. But I tried very hard to put words to feelings that I thought maybe we were all experiencing together in big law. Has big law and big law firms just become too economically efficient? There is this pursuit of increasing profits every year that I think is just squeezing more and more efficiency out of every lawyer. And that's okay if there's a real leverage of technology, but it's not. And and I can only speak for M&A lawyers. And we work particularly hard and work, I think, harder than almost any other group in, in big law. But I think that once you start charging clients $11, 12 $1,300 an hour, there is an expectation that the deals get done perfectly and they get done quickly. And so I think I agree with you, David. The pursuit of higher fees and better economics has squeezed big law lawyers to the point where it's you know, as efficient as possible. Talk about the push to specialization in big law, which has been there, you know, for at this point, at least a couple of generations. And, you know, obviously has advantages for the clients, advantages for the business, but may 
lead to a less satisfying practice for many lawyers. I think that's absolutely right, David. And I think specialization in some sense is good, right? I don't want to get a triple bypass surgery from my podiatrist. I want a specialist who is very well-versed in what they're doing. So if somebody's doing an M&A transaction, they should have an M&A lawyer. They should not have an immigration specialist or a divorce lawyer handling their M&A transaction. I agree. Specialization is incredibly important when it comes to complex areas of the law like M&A. However, the hyper-specialization within each specialization, I think, takes away something from the client. And what it takes away is the broad perspective that lawyers used to have. An M&A lawyer used to understand, you know, a corporate generalist or an M&A lawyer used to have a good understanding of tax law and IP and employment law and all sorts of other specialties that they have to draw on. And a hyper-specialization within industries of M&A is also harmful because as an M&A lawyer, you have to be able to take a broader strategic perspective. And that strategic perspective needs to be informed by all sorts of experiences and data that that M&A lawyer has gone through. So for me, I believe that the intense focus on specialization within big law takes something away from the client. Yes, that person gets very, very good at what they're doing. And we need specialists and we need tax specialists and employment specialists and IP specialists. But I think for an M&A lawyer to have a bit of background in finance and different areas makes them a much better and strategic business advisor to their clients. Talk about your practice at SMB and how it differs from your practice at Gibson. Same M&A, different level of the market. So at Gibson, we're mostly focused on middle and upper market M&A deals. So that was 500 million and up. My focus now is on what you could call micro M&A deals or even small M&A deals, sub $100 million M&A deals. And the deals are very similar. The cadence is the same. The documents are the same. The legal issues are the same. However, my relationship with the client is very different. I'm a real partner with the client. And private equity groups had all sorts of in-house lawyers and M&A specialists in-house that we would interact with. Now, my clients are small PE funds or independent sponsors who are really relying on me for my expertise. Sometimes it's even individuals. I represented a couple people. They were grandparents and they came here as immigrants 40 years ago and started a dumpster company, a roll-off dumpster company, and it was time to sell. And so they were selling to a public company and I represented them in that sale. And the feeling of real partnership with those clients is so has been so rewarding to me. So sometimes I'd finish a deal, a big P deal, and even if it was written up and there was some sexy headline on the deal the next day, I'd feel good about it for a moment. But there was this anticlimax after a deal ended where we would work so hard on the deal and I would really sacrifice so much to get the deal done and then it would be over. And there was almost a lack of fulfillment afterwards. And now when I represent clients on these smaller deals, these are life-changing transactions for these buyers and sellers. 
for small independent sponsors. They're getting going. They're building little PE groups and holding companies. And they're really changing their life and creating autonomy for themselves and their families. And for that, to me, that's deeply rewarding. The sophistication that I can bring to these deals, having done large M&A deals, allows me to really run circles around counsel on the other side and, and help advise my clients in the best way possible. So I'm very happy I had that experience doing the larger deals. I got to work under the most top-notch elite M&A lawyers in the world. And the lawyers at Gibson Dunn are bar none, some of the best in the world in the private equity M&A group at Gibson Dunn. And that was invaluable experience. I wouldn't have done it any other way. However, to me, it is deeply fulfilling to represent these clients in the micro M&A deals. Talk about, as you were considering your career options, did you talk about that with you know, friends from law school or your colleagues your age at work or just people who reached out to you on LinkedIn? And what were those conversations like? Yeah, I spoke to a lot of colleagues, especially when they heard that I was considering a move or making a move. And they would reach out and we would discuss similar issues that they were facing. And my conclusion after those conversations is that there's a lot of big law lawyers that are struggling. They're struggling to have it all. They want to be great lawyers. They want to work hard, but they also want to balance an engagement with family. They can't... Being an amazing lawyer cannot be at the cost of the life that we have outside of work and the people who love us and want to be with us. And so in those conversations, there was just so much angst and struggle and people who said to me, Ellie, how do I do this? How do I, without giving up my career and without giving up my passion for law, how do I manage? And so there's, there's a lot of people out there who are really struggling to find the way. And talk about at SMB, you're entirely work from home. Talk about that and the advantages for you and maybe drawbacks that you see as well. Work from home has been transformative for me. I remember when I worked at a big law firm in Washington, D.C., and I would go into the office. I'd leave you know, a quarter to six in the morning to try to beat the traffic. I'd get into the office around 6.30, 7 a.m., And so I would leave before my kids woke up and I would be home after my kids went to sleep. I'd miss dinners. I would miss that moment when the kids come home from school and they're just wild and dropping their backpack in the middle of the hallway. And I would miss all of those moments. And I felt like I was visiting on the weekends and that I felt ostracized from the family. I felt like an observer in my own home. And my relationships suffered. And as much as I tried to maintain that, it was almost impossible working from the office full-time. Before COVID, I started working from home more. And I started insisting on it because I was doing deals internationally and nationally. I was interacting with counsel and clients in India and California. And at some point, it occurred to me that there was no point wasting two, three hours of my day and sacrificing my family life to be in the office full time. And so I started working from home. And Gibson Dunn had a policy at the time that do what's best for the client policy. 
And so it was best for me and the clients to work from home. And so I did that. I, I was a little bit of a renegade in that sense, but it was absolutely transformative for me. I found that I was able to be with the kids in the morning and then step into my office. I was, I worked harder. I worked more efficiently. I could maintain the relationship with my wife by scheduling half an hour to step out of my office in the middle of the day for a coffee date. I'd be home when the kids came home from school. They'd run into my office and give me hugs. And just by working from home and working on being more engaged with my family, I felt much more of a well-rounded person. And I found that when I'm not engaged with my family, when I don't have a close and deeply connected relationship with my wife, I'm half the lawyer that I can be. I'm half as focused. I'm half as intellectually creative. And when I am fully engaged with the different parts of me that need nurturing, I'm a much, much better lawyer and I'm a, and a much better human. With that, tell us a little bit about your life outside of work, which revolves around your family. So there's not much life outside of work and family. My life outside of work is family. And I would actually say, David, that it's a bit of a misnomer to say that I have any life outside of work because my work is fully encompassing. I don't pretend to be able to shut off my phone. I have clients that you know call me for emergencies at 8 p.m. And I explain to my kids and my family that I have clients that rely on me and need me to be available for them. And my phone is in my pocket at all times. I have it on six days a week, 24 hours a day. I take off for Shabbat. I turn my phone off. I observe the Jewish Shabbat and I turn my phone off from Friday night to Saturday night. So absolutely no technology, no emergencies during those 25 hours. But other than that, work is all the time. However, it is fully integrated with family. So what do I like to do when I'm not working? We live on a homestead in the Shenandoah Mountains. We bought six acres out here on a mountaintop and we have goats and chickens that we raise. And so that part, that passion of raising animals and being connected to the land for me is fully integrated with my work passion. So I'll be on conference calls, feeding the goats and collecting the eggs from the chickens, and then engage with my family when they come home from school. And on Sundays, we like to go for hikes. And then last year, I started coaching my son's wrestling team. So he started wrestling last year. I wrestled in high school. I believe it's a, an amazing sport for kids to do. Teaches self-reliance and confidence and dedication and grit. And so I've started coaching his wrestling team. And that's three nights a week and tournaments on the weekends during the winter. So between those two things, I am booked. I have no other time for anything else. Ellie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you, David. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus. 